It's episode 790 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. It's time for another Tour de France update. Let's give that intro. Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh. Six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. We talk about nutrition constantly on this podcast. Fueling pre-session, mid-session and post-session, they're vital for performance and for recovery. As I age, I'm becoming more aware of what I'm putting into my body. Have you ever stopped and taken a second to read the ingredients on the back of a traditional sports bar or gel? I literally can't even pronounce some of the ingredient list. It's scary. So many additives and so many chemicals. I've been on a search to remedy this and I was so happy to find Veloforte and we're now teaming up with them on the podcast. 100% natural, gluten-free Veloforte products have never upset my stomach while I've been out training, and this used to be a big problem for me. My teeth and gut are also thanking me for eating real food when I'm out on the bike. Veloforte are kind of like making your own energy bars and gels at home, but with none of the mess or none of the effort. They taste absolutely amazing. I honestly struggle not to eat them in the evening time with a cup of tea. The range is so amazing. They have good, healthy bars, protein shakes, and performance-enhancing chews and gels, all created to help you feel better while you train. Head on over to veloforte.com now, and if you use the code ROADMAN25, that's going to get you 25% off your first order. Roadman, welcome back. I hope everybody had an amazing weekend. It was my little sister's kids christening at the weekend. So I was crowned, as Sarah would call it, very godfather. So I didn't ride the bike as much as I normally would on a weekend. Got a little bit of gravel riding in yesterday with Sarah, who only had a couple of minor topples. Amazing watching her skills improve week on week from, you know, starting out when I've talked about on Newbie Questions where she couldn't even clip into the pedals to yesterday i looked back at one point and i was like don't ride this part sarah and as i was saying that she was like halfway down a set of like six or seven really steep steps that were horribly spaced because you couldn't really land one wheel before the next step commenced and she made it all the way down so that's one that definitely could have went wrong and it was a cliff over to the right hand side so don't try this at home Stage nine of the Tour de France, it was yesterday, and yeah, cracker, I'm captivated by this race. We started off in saint leonard de Noble, if I pronounced that right, and we are finishing up the iconic climb of Puy de Dome, 182 kilometers to bring down the curtain on this enthralling first week of the Tour de France. The stage itself, it was up and down for a good chunk of the day with a fourth category climb, a third category climb, and then obviously the beast at the end, that horse category, Puy de Dome, which is 13.3 kilometers long at 7.7%. But if you're watching the highlights, it's the last couple of kilometers, which are north of 11% all the way up, and gradients of 14, 15% in parts that just made it a captivating battle. This is one of the most famous climbs in Tour de France history. If you're a student of the sport, you'll have remembered the Anquetil-Poulador battle that took place on these slopes. I, if I recall it correctly, Anquetil was leading the Tour de France. Poulador, who was the grandfather of Mathieu van der Poel, this was his last chance to really take time back on his great French rival. 
and he attacked him time after time, eventually cracking Onkatil and winning the stage, but not taking enough time to take the overall lead. And then Onkatil sealed his fifth and final Tour de France a couple of days later in the time trial and then held on to it into Paris. But Van der Poel was presented with his grandfather Poulador's old bike at the start, which was a nice gesture. What I was struck by in the presentation was the narrow spread on his rear cassette and the gradients later on, which Mike Woods got up. Mike Woods was probably rocking, I don't know, a 36, 28 or a 36, 32 gear ratio. Those guys would have been rocking 42 inside ring and probably a 19 on the back. It was crazy. How did they get up it? And even the evolution of the gears from when Pulidor won it to when Johnny Wells who was the winner in 1988 up that stage. The gears, the gearing had moved on so much because they were on to 8-speed at that stage. Obviously, now we're on to 12 and we just have this, you know, never, you'd ride up the side of a house with the gears you have these days. You know, I'm riding a one-boy on my gravel bike and there's nothing you can't go up on it. It's ridiculous. Before the racing started, we were still dealing with the news from stage 8. Probably the biggest story in the Tour de France so far, Mark Cavendish crashed out. A harmless enough crash when I watched it back. He's sitting at the back of the bunch and when you're sitting at the back of the bunch, this strange thing happens occasionally where someone at the front of the group just feathers their brakes. This is like the story of, you know, a butterfly flaps his wings on one half of the world and it causes a monsoon on the other half. Well, that's exactly what happens because somebody just feathers their brakes at the front of the bunch and the feather, as it goes back to 180 or so odd riders, starts requiring increasingly more pressure on the gear, on the brake pull. So as you get back halfway through the group, guys are kind of jamming on a little bit. But as you get all the way to the back when you're sitting where Cavendish is, this ends up being a bit of a lockup. And you see one or two really innocuous, harmless crashes per season with this lockup because you can easily navigate around it if you see it coming. But if you have a moment in attention, now it's not like drivers these days, it's not like Cavendish is checking his phone at the back of the bunch, but a moment in attention could have been he's changing the screen on his Garmin, he's reached down for a bottle, he's getting rid of some wrappers in his pocket, anything like that, and a moment's in attention and you don't have the reaction speed to navigate around this. And down you go, and broken collarbone and out of Tour de France, and Cavendish the day before when he got second and had those gear issues and it looked like he was going to take the record, he said he's in the best shape of his life. So what does it take to get into that best shape? It takes a serious amount of commitment, and the Tour de France, to state the obvious, is a full year away again. So Cavendish has said he's retiring at the end of the season. People are saying now maybe he goes one more year, but like it's a full year and it's a trivial injury where you can get back on the turbo trainer, you know, probably inside a week. But he's not going to go back and jump on and race the Vuelta. He doesn't care about the Vuelta. He doesn't care about the Worlds at the end of the year. He cares about the record and the Tour de France, or the record outright, I should say, and the Tour de France. So does he go through a full year again, another year d'Italia to get ready again? I just don't know. I think his chance was two days ago when the gears slipped, or three days ago at this stage when the gears slipped. I think that was the chance where Philipson took another stage win that day and Philipson looks to be cruising at the moment. But onto today's stage nine. The break was allowed a huge margin today, north of 13 minutes when I tuned in at one point. No surprise though, because the best placed rider in that break was 26 minutes down and it was a 14-man break, including Michael Woods, Matej Mohoric, Pierre Latour, Matteo Jorgensen. 
to name a few. And when the break is that big and it's that many minutes down, you always see them getting this huge, huge lead. I've talked about this on the podcast before. A breakaway is collaborative. When you see riders trying to etch out a lead on the peloton, their goal is the same. Even though they're on different teams, their goals are totally aligned to get clear of the peloton. They don't care at that point who is going to win the race. They're caring about getting ahead of the peloton so someone from the breakaway wins. So there's a collaborative relationship between everyone in the break. Everyone shares their work with the same goal to beat the peloton that day and the winner to come out of this break. Now, at a certain point in the day, when it becomes obvious that the winner is coming out of that breakaway, the relationship changes from collaborative to competitive. And when we have these days when the break gets huge amounts of time, 13 plus minutes, it's obvious earlier in the day that we don't need to be collaborative anymore. Now we can be competitive. And they're very difficult days when you're in the breakaway because it becomes a game a little bit of potluck where attacks are going like 40, 50 kilometers out and then you have to follow it and then you, as soon as you get caught, you're getting countered. I was in a Sunday race a couple of weeks ago and this was happening. And there's a little bit of luck in this because you need to follow the right move. And Matteo Jorgensen struck out. Maybe he didn't back himself to be the best climber in the in the breakaway, which was correct in the end. But he struck out 48 kilometers from home and he eked out kind of a 15 second advantage and hung there for quite a while. But then it started to stretch as we got into the last into like the closing scenes of this and his the Poi de Dome climb it started to stretch and at the bottom of the climb I think he had 150 on the chasers Nelson Paulus Mate Moharic but he had 2 minutes 20 lead on Michael Woods and Michael Woods would ultimately catch him in the closing metres of the race to win the stage but the confidence Michael Woods must have had to sit back on what was the third group on the road because we had Jorgensen, then we had the chase group and then we had the remaining of the breakaway. Mike Woods made the decision to hit the bottom of the climb, to hit the bottom of the Puda Dome and ride the bottom to the top in the fastest time possible. We're seeing this more and more in recent years. This was like a Bradley Wiggins kind of brought this in where he wasn't responding to any external stimulus. He wasn't responding to anyone else's tactics just get from the bottom to the top in the fastest time possible. Mike Woods is an outstanding, standing climber. Now, this sounds different, but when you're standing, there's a different torque requirement. So power to weight is power to weight, but there's two different ways you can apply it with different torque measurements. Mike Woods is a brilliant standing climber. It recruits different muscle groups. Maybe it's a throwback to when he was uh, putting down those crazy run times, the you know, sub 14, 30 for a 5K. Maybe it's a throwback to that. But he has always been a phenomenal standing climber. I remember racing against Mike Woods when he was in Garneau and racing out in Quebec and just the beatings he used to give us on steep standing climbs. And don't forget, he was a podium when Valverde won the World Championships. And that climb was super steep, requiring standing all the way up. So as soon as I seen him in the breakaway, I was like, this is designed for Mike Woods. But 220, I didn't think he'd pull that out of the bag. He did. Fair play, Rusty. He's been on the podcast as well, and he's a gent of a lad. So Mike Woods took the stage from Pierre Latour, Moharic, and Jorgensen finished fourth. He got overhauled by Pierre Latour and Moharic in the closing kilometers, which was heartbreak. The days when we see these crazy escapes and the massive time between them, they're quite good from a spectator point of view because you need to, you get to watch the stage twice. You get to watch the breakaway fighting it out for the win. Then you wait 10 minutes or so and you get to watch the GC guys waiting for the win. So with 1.5 kilometers to go, we had that Pogaccia attack. 
And I'm not really sure what he was looking around for, but he looked around maybe six, seven times. I'm not sure if his earpiece potentially wasn't working and he couldn't see that he had separation between himself and Jonas. Jonas, to be fair to him, never cracked. He rode a pace that he could sustain to the top. It wasn't as fast as Pogaccia's. So Pogaccia, in the end, took out eight seconds. But I think more than the eight seconds, he's dealt another psychological blow to Jonas. That's two days in a row where he's lost time. The momentum is firmly with Pogaccia. Momentum is such a powerful animal. Like when it's going with you, it's amazing. When it's going against you, it's like jumping off the boat, holding onto an anchor. It brings you down. Like if you've ever been in that slump where you're eating shit food or you're going to bed at the wrong time, it just builds and builds and builds and it gets worse and worse. And you need a moment, something where you offset that momentum and you say, no, line in the sand, enough. I'm breaking that habit. I'm going in the other direction. And then when you're working out every day, it's easy to work out every day. It's the same thing in a bike race. When you have that momentum, it is easy to keep building on that momentum. And that momentum is firmly with Pogaccia at the moment. We have Jonas now going into rest day press conferences tomorrow where he's going to get plugged with the same questions about how Jumbo is a leaky ship at the moment. For me, Pogaccia has to be favourite. But Jonas and Jumbo Visma are playing a sneaky little tactic. We'd seen Sip Kuss, who's riding a crazy firm pace in the final of races, which only really Pogaccia and Jonas can follow. But when he pulls over, he's not sitting up like Wout van Aert is sitting up and coming to a standstill that requires fans to push him. He's continuing at a decent tempo and he's coming in with the Adam Yates kind of group that's a couple of minutes down. And as a result, he's in the top 10. So this is a sneaky little card they can play later in the race. I'm not sure when we'll see it played, you know, maybe as early as stage 10 in the Massif Central, which is the day after tomorrow. I suppose it's a good segue to talk about it because the day after tomorrow, rest days are notoriously not liked by GCE riders in the tour. The body gets into a certain rhythm riding every single day, four to six hours, breakfast at a certain time, massage at a certain time. This happens to me in the Ross even, you know, you ride seven, eight days. Even if you're absolutely on your hands and knees you get through the seven eight days but as soon as you stop if you ask me to ride the next day no way can't do it i'm getting sick i'm feeling under the weather just mood changes everything but if you had extended the race one more day would have got through it no problem that's what you're facing at a rest day and notoriously with christian van der Velde didn't come out with a rest day well in the tour de france and lost his podium chances people have been very vocal about the amount they ride on rest days three four hours with a lot of intensity so we're going into stage 10 the day after the rest day tomorrow and we have four third category climbs it starts uphill we have one second category climb it's up and down all day and it's in the massive central Having George Hincapi on the podcast a couple of months ago, he talked about the post-traumatic stress disorder he still has from trying to control the race in the Massif Central. Impossible. Dead roads, twisty, riders are out of sight fast. Really perfect for a breakaway. So a stage like this, potentially, with Sepku still sitting in striking distance in the top 10, Yumbo fired him into one of those big breakaways like happened today. By the time his number get call- gets called, like we seen with Joy Hindley the other day, he's in the break and now... UAE have a real problem because they have a top 10 rider from Jumbo Visma in the break. The whole team is needed to pull on the front and it's a resources battle over three weeks where that'll slightly wear down teams. Even if it doesn't ultimately mean Sep takes the jersey, it wears down the teams. So that's a smart little tactical play they have going on at the moment. But I'd still have to say the momentum is with Pogaccia and we've two weeks of enthralling racing left to go. Bring it on, Roadmen. Right safe. I'll be back tomorrow with another Roadman Cycling Podcast. Have a great day.